A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistle. Welcome to episode 115 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website's 2nd Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on Zoom, Stitcher, as well as iTunes, and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the misplaced rebellion idealism that any weapon against the Empire is a win for us, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome. We are moving right along with our coverage of uh, Vector here. It feels like just moments ago, we recorded about the Dark Times part. I wonder why that is. That's a good question. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions like, why are they changing Korriban to Moriban? And others like that. Questions that have perplexed you often on what you ponder about Star Wars and so do we. Well, this episode, we continue exploring deeper down the vector gravity well. This week, we're jumping into Star Wars Rebellion, issues 15 and 16. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Well, this time we're taking a look at the third piece of Vector. Now, the first piece was four issues of Knights of the Old Republic, and then they shortened it a little bit. We wound up with two issues of Dark Times. Now we're in the two issues of Rebellion before we move on to the four issues of Legacy. So basically, four, two, two, four is their approach to this as they move from era to era to era. And we're judging this based on the criteria that they gave themselves. We're not making up the idea of, you know, hey, let's judge this by certain criteria. They did it themselves. As they laid out in issue number 25 of Knights of the Old Republic in its letters page, they said that there are three checkboxes, and they literally present them as checkboxes, that they want to tick off for each series in Vector. First, they said they want to make the events in the crossover mean something to the characters in each of the four series. Vector should also change the course of every series that it touches. That's checkbox number one. Checkbox two, the series must be reader-friendly. The events in Vector must be easily accessible to both new and long-time readers. And then we have checkbox number three. Readers must not feel that they are forced to purchase issues of series that they wouldn't ordinarily read in order to follow the story of the crossover. Every chapter of Vector must work as a standalone story within the series in which it takes place. And so far, we've seen one series in which that all pretty much worked, of course, which was KOTOR, and one in which it managed to miss every one of the checkboxes, which was Dark Times. In this case, we're looking at Rebellion issues 15 and 16. They're written by Rob Williams, uh, who I have kind of a fondness for just because his Nomad story uh, premiered as one of his first things ever writing for Star Wars uh, in the same issue as my Equals and Opposites back in Star Wars Tales. Uh, So it's a name that I tend to see and go, hey, cool. Uh, He's also someone who's done some really good stuff with things like My Brother, My Enemy in the pages of Rebellion. And the art in this case is by Dustin Weaver. Uh, Travis Cherist is back with the cover to issue 15, whereas Dan Scott provides the cover for issue number 16. Uh, We have jumped here in time, and now uh, it's basically nine months after A New Hope. So this is back when the Star Wars comics set in the era between A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back actually bothered to tell us how many months later it was, and we were starting to slowly feel like they were getting a handle on at least bits and pieces of that era in which the characters don't have time to stop and take a leak because there's so many freaking stories uh, plugged in there. This one, I would say I like the artwork in this one uh, quite a bit. So from an artistic standpoint, I think it works well most of the time. Um, From a storytelling standpoint, 
Um, it works. It, it's it's kind of hard to tell who the main character is supposed to be of the story. Uh, Luke winds up being the one that takes precedence here and gets a chance to have at least a little bit of, I don't want to say character development, because it's something that kind of ties into things he's already been thinking. And we know that in this era, there's so many freaking stories that anything that happens in this story has disappeared by the time we get to the next stories chronologically. But he gets to be the one who sort of seems as though he's getting a little bit of character development. And while the way that they, they reintroduce Celeste to us, um, at least briefly, kind of has you shaking your head like, wait a second, isn't that kind of the opposite of what she was trying to do back in the Dark Times part? Uh, it manages to give us a, a decent story, but again, one that I don't think manages to, to tick off all of the little checkboxes. Or in trying to do so, it manages to come off a little bit weaker than it should have. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say that because of the way that this plays out, despite the fact that I particularly like the artwork in this better than in the previous one, and I and I actually care about Luke and Leia and the characters of this, whereas I didn't care a whit about the crew of the Uhu Melee and such, or the little uh, Dr. Paturi back in Dark Times, despite caring more for those characters, I feel like this is the one that is the least impactful uh, in terms of mattering to the overall continuity and fitting the goals of Vector out of all four of them. I would actually put Dark Times ahead of this one. And you know me, I would scarcely ever put Dark Times ahead of <laughs> anything. Um, but yeah. it, just, it just doesn't work as well. Vector's great in KOTOR and Legacy, as we'll see, but it just doesn't seem to work well in the other two. They're basically connective tissue. You need these two, Dark Times and Rebellion, to get you t from KOTOR to Legacy. But is it really doing anything for this era and this series? No. And the fact that this is the last arc of Rebellion before a supposed planned hiatus in 2009, which I call BS on, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it just seems as though this doesn't fulfill its promise either, unfortunately, even if it looks good. Yeah, that hiatus is what kills it for me. I mean, uh, you know, when we were at the last one, I was talking about how it, it was working from a vector point moving forward into that one, but the baton handing forward from there doesn't quite work. This one it's like the baton kind of gets kicked up into your hand. You get it. And then you immediately trip and fall right on your face. I mean, the fact that that planned hiatus became a death knell and, and the story ends pretty much at these arcs. There's no other issues after these two, correct? That's correct. This does not just end vectors movement through this time period. It ends rebellion as a series period. Mm. And they say that they're not only taking a hiatus from rebellion. They say in that issue, they're taking a hiatus from and I quote here, from this era of Star Wars. So there was no plan, even as the time of that last issue was coming out, that they were going to be going forward at all, let alone going forward with changes made by this arc. Wow. So yeah, total drop the ball. I mean, I thought after this we're supposed to have a whole vector and the characters are going somewhere based off of this. So there's nothing there for these characters beyond like this. This could be Death Troopers for Han and Chewie. I mean, for all intents and purposes. Great story, but never going to be talked about again. And so therefore any kind of character growth that would happen in this story is just lost. Uh, one thing that I, I do find interesting about this one versus, say, Dark Times is this one, like, they go right away and kind of rehash everything that's happened in the films, like you've never watched the Star Wars movies before, whereas Dark Times, they kind of just jumped you in, you were just supposed to know what's going on. This one kind of at least goes back and gives you that starting point. So I will give them props in that regard, that you could grab these two and read them as a standalone in that vein, and it works. But I don't know if you would get the same kind of enjoyment out of the characters and where you're at in rebellion by just grabbing this and going from there. And since there's nothing that follows it, uh, it fails that same mark that it almost hits. Uh, the art I like, I, I really enjoy the art, the characters in this one, I actually care more for. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm of the same opinion of you at the end. Uh, you know, the last one ended it with things where the transition to legacy kind of would have made more sense. This one leaves me scratching my head more, which I'll get into more as we get into more of the spoilers. Uh, you know, there are a lot of cool moments with characters and stuff in this that that I enjoyed. Uh, and then there were also some that I really didn't care for. Um, but the threat, again, it gets back to that aspect of, you know, the threat in this one and in Dark Times 
the threats of the galaxy wasn't as big as it could have been or or should have been perceived. It doesn't seem like anyone really understands or fathoms how bad a threat the Rat Cool Plague and the Mirror Talisman really could be, aside from maybe Vader. Which, like I had said in our Dark Times one, if you look at Dark Times and Rebellion as a four-issue spread for Vader, it may work a little better for you, but the gap here doesn't quite work. I think for me that that 19-year gap from Dark Times to here is part of the beginning of my issue that I have and will have from Rebellion into Legacy. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. So consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. We pick up in Rebellion. Uh, remember, the last arc we saw was small victories. Before that, it was the Ahakista Gambit. So we're sort of riding off the coattails of those. And uh, we begin with the Rebel Fleet. A really cool image, by the way, of the Rebel Fleet. That um, whole page is cool. I love I love mm-hmm. not only how you have the fleet, but the way they do the zoom in on the next one. And then it goes even closer. And when you're actually looking at the little tiny zoom out of the the hangar bay field and stuff the pose luke has is exactly the same pose they show i i think that that really works as setting a, a cool beginning tone awesome pose even if uh luke looks in that uh that last body shot of him before they go to his eyes even if he looks like he could have been drawn by the monkey people back in the kotor part of vector um it's looking down at his lightsaber he's contemplative and he has a flashback uh, an inaccurate flashback back to the events of a new hope uh, in which Ben is is talking to him as he's uh, messing with the lightsaber for the first time. You know, not as clumsy or random as a blaster. Uh, an elegant weapon for a more civilized time. Apparently, Luke's mind has transposed age and time because that should ring untrue to anyone who is a Star Wars fan intimately familiar with the films. Um, we basically get the idea here that he's remembering when he first saw the lightsaber and he's remembering when he saw it used by Ben... Uh, to fight Vader. So he flashes back to the death of Ben, which uh, kicks off this idea that the loss of Ben hits him immediately, um, but this is the one person who could have told him about how to be a Jedi and the one person who could have told him about his father. So it's not just the loss of a mentor, it's a loss of that kind of knowledge, which in a sense is what's going to propel Luke in this story, the fact that he needs more knowledge about the Jedi. Of course, how that plays in, how much knowledge he does or doesn't have about the Jedi, depending on when you're looking at in all the tons of stories in this time period, is kind of an iffy thing. Uh, sometimes it seems like he knows more than he does here. Sometimes it seems like he knows less. It really depends on which story you're looking at and which writer it is who's doing the writing. There's just so many stories crammed into this time period. Um, but we move very quickly into seeing Vader's side of things. Uh, Vader has sent Captain Holt with a whole bunch of TIE fighters and a whole bunch of uh, shuttles with, a, I guess, a Star Destroyer backing them up uh, to go down and check out that moon. They do clarify here that it's a moon, although they called it a world back in Dark Times, to check out this moon where Celeste Morn was left. Vader, for his part, is staying well away from everything. He's on Coruscant communicating just through uh, hologram. And he talks about her, uh, Celeste Morn. It's been years since he left her on that moon with only an ancient Sith's whisper for companionship. Right, because at the end of Dark Times, she chose to essentially take control of the Mirror Talisman and not leave the moon uh, when Vader fled and when the Uhumele fled so that she could keep Karnas Mirror from being able to get out into the broader galaxy. And she turned all the stormtroopers, uh, clone troopers slash stormtroopers into rat ghouls to keep Vader from being able to be the one who was the host to the talisman. Uh, too dangerous to be allowed freedom. The rarest of things, a genuine threat. Yet, he has often thought that perhaps she could somehow be of use to him. Which presumably is why he didn't nuke the living crap out of that moon like he should have at the end of Dark Times. I think everybody was expecting that he would have or should have done at the end of Dark Times. Now he apparently finds a use for her. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. I want to know what prompted his decision to use her. Like, uh, that didn't end good for you the last time, fool. You practically ran out of there. (laughs) Like, what has changed that you think that this is a good idea now? What has changed? The cross-through slash crossover vector has arrived. That's what's... Oh, wait, he wouldn't know that. Um, so 
uh, the Imperial ships start heading down to check things out. He wonders what kind of madness may have overtaken uh, Celeste Morn over this amount of time, because I mean, we're going from just about four months or so after the events of Revenge of the Sith to nine months after the events of A New Hope. I mean, it's, it's been a couple decades at this point. Uh, and as they are coming down, and I like the way they do this, there is a shot of a shadowy Celeste Morn as the shuttles are coming down, and she's on the right-hand side of the panel. And we quickly... Uh, jump back to Coruscant, where Vader is standing on sort of a little walkway-type platform and, uh, overlooking, like a balcony, overlooking the cityscape. And he is standing uh, partially in shadow over on the left-hand side with sort of a sunrise-type effect going, um, which I thought was a cool image. And uh, they're reporting, hey, uh, there's a woman. There's a human woman in our path. What do we do? And apparently the answer is, die! Because she manages to use the Force and bring it down. Uh, very much uh, the Force unleashed you know, Star Killer bringing down the Star Destroyer style where it crashes nose first and skids to a stop essentially in See, front of her. And I wondered, I, I assume that she used the mirror talisman to change because the one guy's like, you know, like I thought she made him rackle out and that caused them to crash but either, either way she... i was questioning i was like well why not just let him crash why not let him land and then take them over and then you got a perfectly working shuttle like that that part had me scratching my head well it seems like uh uh it's it's a combination of both because she does have her hand pointed out toward it when it's actually coming down but yeah right before she has she puts out her hand toward it um the right little thing happens because he's doing the um and maybe she's just you know, she, there's several ships, so surely there'll be one that's still, you know, available, at least we would hope, um, for her sake, if that's what she's actually trying to do. But notice that uh, right before they start turning into rat ghouls and stuff, uh, one of the pilots does say that she's about to be a dead woman. So it's not like they were going to just land or, or change their path. They were going to basically either kill her or land on her uh, based on where she was standing. True. Um, and, and the paneling here... They, they don't give you a sense of age. You know, I talked about that earlier and then and in our last issue as well that, you know, she's been here for 19 years. And, you know, the art is drawn good. I like the art. I'm happy with the art. But it's done in a way where it's like you could almost think she's got gray in her hair at this point. So I'm kind of like, you know, I'm questioning that aspect of did the talisman give her unlimited life? I, I don't remember that being part of its benefits, but at this point I'm starting to question if that was also one of the things. Maybe the Ublix itself was just a prison. Maybe it wasn't what kept her living forever. Maybe it was the talisman. And apparently her hair has not grown. Otherwise, she has cut it with the lightsaber and put it right back the way that it was. Because she looks like she might as well have been in stasis for all those years, whereas she's been living essentially on her own on an uninhabited moon for all this time. Presumably... She either gets back into the, the oubliette for a short time and somehow gets herself back out of it, or she manages to eat some rat cool or something because there sure doesn't look like there's any way she could have been finding food or water to stay alive for those 19 years. But you know, setting aside the whether or not she could have managed to survive, the ship crashes down and it's you know all the stormtroopers, all the pilots and everyone inside have become rat ghouls. And you see in the next panel that the other ships all crash down too. So basically... She's managed to take out at least three different Imperial shuttles, and now she has another whole horde of Rek mm. Ghouls at her disposal. Which yeah, then, it's a cool panel in that regard because it gives you that oh crap moment. <laughs> and that brings us into one of the few connections uh, in this arc of Rebellion back to any previous arc in Rebellion, at least aside from just characters themselves. Uh, you may recall that Will Tarson had been the one who was working uh, for the crime lord and managed to slip uh, Tank, Janik Tank Sumber's message to Luke back for my brother, my enemy. And he was found out. And he managed to wind up getting the bomb, putting his head and everything back in the Ahakista gambit. He was found out to be a rebel spy within Reza's operation. Well, now, thanks to the end of the Ahakista gambit, he has been captured by the Empire, and they plan to use him. Well, here he is finally... And I kind of wonder if the Ahakista Gambit was there for no other reason but to set up Will Tarson being here. Um, if so, we got a nye story to be able to do that. And sure enough, now Will Tarson is there on Coruscant with Vader, who that evening, presumably, um, because it must have been sundown, not sun up, because by the time he seems to be walking back inside uh, after realizing that she is still alive, it's already gone dark outside. 
So he goes back inside and he wants to use Will Tarson to send a message, or at least a piece of information of unknown origin, to the rebels. Uh, and in doing so, this means that our rebels essentially get split up, right? Because you've got the Dagger Squadron that we know based on small victories is now on its way to Anseon. So now another ship uh, full of rebels, in this case uh, piloted by Leia and Luke, and the Millennium Falcon, of course piloted by Han Solo and Chewbacca, are on their way with basically a strike team that includes uh, Basso from Raltier that we've met uh, from Empire, and uh, uh, Abel, right, the clone trooper who survived the Clone Wars that we know from the General Skywalker story, and Dina Shan, who finally sort of came into her own back in the previous arc, Small Victories. Um, a strike team consisting of them and quite a few more members um, are on their way to this planet that supposedly has this Imperial weapon that they must check out. Ooh. You know, there, there's a moment here in the art that I wanted to touch on because it, it threw me off when I was first reading it. You know, you see Dina Shan, and she's sitting next to a, uh, a Rodian, okay? And the next thing you know, Bosco's sitting right next to her. If you actually look where Luke's uh, word bubble is, he goes, we've already got the firepower side of the mission covered. You can see that Basso's sitting right there and his head's covered up. Uh, it, it threw me off at first. Though. I was like, where is he? What, what, did he just sit down out of nowhere? You know, like, I had no idea where he came from. And then it's like, oh, he is there the whole time. Uh, but another thing that's sad, though, is that, yeah, the Will Tarson angle, it's like he's only brought in just as a reliable source of this information being leaked to the empire or I mean, from the empire. So it's kind of like anybody could have filled that role. They just chose him because, Hey, we've already used him before. So it's kind of like, okay, I get why you used him, but it's weird because he, he doesn't show up again. And then of course the series ends. So you don't see any more of him. So it's kind of like, huh, wonder why they used him. I, obvious why, but at the same time, it's kind of like, oh, well, you, you could have got by without even using that. I mean, when you think about what little they did in dark times, and we were supposed to assume that Vader was looking for an apprentice. I, I don't know. They could have got around that. But again, I guess I guess I should be giving them kudos for that, I guess, that little bit of info that they didn't have to do that they did. Yeah, I do like the fact that it is Will Tarson that manages to be the one here. It at least makes you think that maybe there was a plan for that character from the beginning. Uh, something needs to justify the Ahakista Gamma. Um I do find it kind of a a a in an a hole, I guess you'd say, moment for Luke. Um, Luke was the one who was, you know, he was supporting Dina back in the previous arc and everything. It almost looked like there could be a romantic connection happening between them, but of course, uh, he's still focused on Leia, not realizing that she's his sister and all this kind of stuff. Um, but here, as they're flying out, you get that sort of typical rookie type humor, um, where Dina says, "Hey, Luke," and uh, he has to be corrected by Basil. You know, he's the mission commander. Do you know you don't get to refer to him by his first name? Oh, sorry. You're right, Basil. I'm still getting used to the whole commando thing. Captain Skywalker, sir? And Luke's douchebaggy moment. I swear, Dina, if you ask, are we there yet? Seriously, Luke? That's, that's the respect you're going to pay to this character now. It seemed like, at least in the last arc, he had some respect for her, and it seems like she should have gained more respect by now after what happened in Small Victories. And he's talking to her as if she's a freaking toddler. That, to me, was out of character uh, for Luke, for him to say that on this mission, unless there's somehow supposed to be some other kind of uh, extreme stress that he is under that would cause him to act like that towards her. That just was a false note to me. Yeah, I did like the camaraderie there, though, when Abel, you know, he's like, it's down there, General, we'll find it. And Bass is like, they let you hand out instant promotions back in the Clone Wars, Abel? My apologies. Force of habit. All Jedis were generals in my day. I like... Abel. Abel was one of the coolest things they brought into Rebellion. I was really looking forward to where we were going to go from there. And we'll get there. <laughs> so, they wind up landing on the moon, where the uh, abandoned Imperial Weapons Project is actually, you know, obviously Celeste Morn with the Mirror Talisman and everything, and Vader is telling the Imperials to basically stay out of the way, uh, the ones that are still up there in the Star Destroyer and everything, because the goal is for the Rebels to become infected or to get the Mirror Talisman so that what they, in Vader's words, uh, what they take back to the Rebel fleet will destroy them all. So all of a sudden, Vader's okay with unleashing the Ratgul Plague on the rest of the galaxy. I mean, I guess he's going to have the Imperials follow or something, so that once the plague uh, wipes out the Rebel fleet, they can then wipe out the fleet itself. Otherwise, in order to take out the Rebel fleet right now, he's willing to unleash perhaps a galaxy-destroying plague, under which he would have no control now because he doesn't have the mirror talisman. He's not even bothering to try to go down there 
and get it from Celeste this time. Um, it seems kind of an odd thing. I mean, granted, quite a while has passed. Maybe he's getting more desperate to take down Va- uh, to take down Palpatine at this point. Um, and we'll see that the same thing is kind of happening with Celeste. There seems to be more of a desperation built into the character because the motivations have changed since the last time we saw them. But that seems pretty short-sighted on Vader's part. Wipe out the Rebel fleet by unleashing this this massive plague. I mean, it's like basically saying, you know, my next-door neighbor uh, uh, has a problem with uh, ants infesting part of his apartment, so we're going to drop an A-bomb on the place. Yeah, and I also question the fact that, that, you know, when the Imperials showed up, Celeste goes out of her way to crash their ships, but she allows these ones just to land. I mean, did she finally wise up? <laughs> I, and you, you almost get that sense, like, maybe Vader's kind of smarter than you think, or maybe he just knows uh, what the writer's going to write. So they've landed, and Vader's basically told the Imperials to hang back. So it's basically the, the rebels with Celeste at this point is, is what we expect to see happen. And uh, they kind of fan out. At this point, seeing what exactly it is that's going on, because they find the Imperial ships and there are no bodies, right? Because they all turned into rat ghouls and escaped and such. Apparently, uh, none of them died during the crash. They all became rat ghouls and were hardy enough to survive these crashes. And uh, as they're walking around and checking things out, um, it's Abel that gets the first hint that something is up. And he leaves Dina briefly behind. Uh, after essentially calling her frivolous, which causes her to be kind of, you know, snarky about the whole frivolous thing. It's I guess well, it's uh, that interaction between the two. Uh, yeah, I loved her comment about. Do you ever get the feeling that we're just like bodyguards for those guys? <laughs> which you know, from a reader standpoint, is like that's funny because like basically mm-hmm. that's all sporting cast is for the big three. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's that's sort of uh, where they've been, but at least they've gotten some development recently. So it's kind of one of those, yeah, you're just bodyguards, at least in this story, but at least you got your moment to shine earlier. Um, but we pick up with Abel, and granted, we've seen Abel quite a bit in this series, but we don't get a lot of character development to Abel. Abel's development was back in the General Skywalker part of Empire. And if this is supposed to be something that is, is open for new readers... Then we needed that moment where he refers to Luke as a general to be reminded that, oh, this guy must be an older clone. And now we need a little bit more, and they give us the little narration. Uh, the old soldier that is able from another time feels awful, awful for being rude to a good-hearted girl who just wants to help the Alliance, awful for his suspicions that age is finally catching up with him, and that he is becoming more a hindrance than a help to his friends. He is a man out of time, a ghost who does not belong here. The Clone Wars were his battles. The Jedi were his generals. But the days of the Jedi have passed, just as he senses his own time is drawing to a close. And he manages to come over a ridge, and apparently he is facing the quietest Red Cool army ever to exist. Because no one else hears or senses them initially, and he doesn't, until he walks over the ridge, and there's just an entire age full of rat ghouls, probably far more rat ghouls, actually, than could possibly have been among the Imperials on those ships, um, come charging forward, and he finds himself falling backwards, shooting at the sky as he falls, as these rat ghouls slash stormtrooper wrecks, whatever, um, come charging in uh, at him to overwhelm him. And at that point, all hell's breaking loose, and all the rebels have to open fire to potentially save themselves from this massive horde of rat ghouls. So... At this point, she's not using the talisman to change the rebels yet, but she is sending the Ret Ghoul creatures in an organized way to attack them. And if any of them get bitten, they'll turn into Ret Ghouls. But until she uses the ability of the talisman, she won't be able to turn. She won't be turning any of them into it on her own command. It allows us to have a firefight here instead of everybody, since most of the rebels are human here, to just go. Now we're all Ret Ghouls, and the rebellion part of the story is over. Which is what would have happened if she had, of course, used it right off the bat. It's another one of these. It's kind of like um, what my friend Jim Perry, who's a fellow podcaster and fellow writer for Wars, uh, was complaining about uh, one of the episodes of Clone Wars Season 6. There's a moment in which Anakin has to try to save two people with one person being held by each of his arms as he's hanging off a ledge. And at that moment, he can't just levitate them both or either of them to safety. At that moment, it comes down to a choice between one or the other. Whereas in other circumstances, he could have just used the Force and everything would have been fine. Kind of the same thing here. She probably could have just taken them out by turning them all into rat ghouls because most of them were human. But that wouldn't make for an interesting battle sequence because we need the humans to still be alive for a while to fight the rat ghouls. Therefore, okay, fine. 
will not change them yet. It's again, it's another one of those things where you know it doesn't feel like it's a, a plot hole, but then as soon as you realize it, you never unsee it, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then of course you know you got Dina Basso. Hold your ground, Dina. It's not that. It's it's Abel was up there and. That was the part that irked me. I really was digging the Abel character. I wanted to see them do more with the Abel character. And all we see is him get ran over by Rackles. You don't see him die. You don't see him turn into a Rackle. You just see him overrun by Rackles. And he's gone. Never again to appear in Rebellion. And it's like, what a waste of a character. And and after getting done with, with Dark Times and having what happened with characters in that, with Chris and stuff, you're just like, really? We're going to just... You're just going to keep wasting good characters, good opportunities here? Like, that just really irked me to no end. So in that regard, I guess it's okay that the series came to a close it here because they pretty much had killed all my interest at that point. Because Dina was a character that I only cared for so far. Abel was one that I was really interested in seeing where we were going to go with that character. And, you know, potential story opportunities with, with Luke. I mean, you know, you could have got some insight into the 501st and what Anakin Skywalker would have been doing during the Clone Wars. Heck no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to off this guy. So they're all surrounded by rat ghouls and trying to fight their way through them. And one of them gets bitten. Uh, this is the red shirt of the issue because we never even know the character's name. Uh, it's just a random character who gets bit. Says, Your Highness, I don't, I don't feel... And then, blah, he, of course, turns into a rat ghoul. Um, amid the fighting, though, Luke, who is fighting with his lightsaber and somehow not getting bit at this point because, you know, the story calls for it, um, he senses the Force. He senses Celeste. And that's what brings to her attention in Karnas Mirror, the spirit of Karnas Mirror's attention, that there is a, supposedly a Jedi there, or someone who has a potential to be a Jedi at that point. Um, as everyone else tries to escape... Basically, Chewbacca and Han and Leia, who of course have to survive, and Dina and Basso manage to get aboard the Millennium Falcon, and they escape. They have to leave Luke behind. Um, only with the Falcon's guns do they have a hope of being able to uh, to save them. Okay? Um, and it's weird because I mean, it's Dina, Dina, who realizes that the only way, I guess, excuse me, Leia doesn't get aboard the ship. Leia is grabbed before she can get into the ship. Um, the, the one who realizes that, uh, they need to use the Falcon's guns to try to save them is Dina Shan. Han wants to just run back out there and try to save her. Dina, of all people, is saying, you know, if you do that, you know, if we go back out there, we're dead. Uh, the only hope is to get the Falcon's guns and use it against the, uh, uh, the Rat Ghouls. So Dina, in a sense, has grown into a character where she's the sensible one for once. And I thought that was a nice touch. But as the issue is wrapping up, uh, Luke is still out there fighting. Leia is being pulled away. Luke is fighting rat ghouls and trying not to be dragged towards the cave that Celeste is in. And we don't actually get to hear Celeste talking, but we hear Karnas Muir, um, who basically says, you know, he intends to go out into the galaxy again because it seems that fate smiles upon us, Celeste. The Jedi are here, and we will soon be free again. And uh, Celeste is just seen there with her lightsaber activated, you know, kind of staring forward. And you wonder, because we haven't really seen her say anything yet in this issue, we wonder in what state, as Vader said, uh, in what madness could have befallen her in the time since we have seen her last. Is she going to be a heroic character still, or will she now be a villain in this piece of rebellion? So it makes for a nice cliffhanger as we end the first issue here. That one actually feels like a cliffhanger, unlike the way that Dark Times did it. Yeah, exactly. It works in the cliffhanger aspect, but like Dark Times, I still think they should have went with one more issue because now you've got the moment where she's about to meet Luke and Luke's about to meet her, but that didn't happen in this comic. Yeah, the cliffhanger works, but now you're going to have the introduction and wrap-up all happening in one single issue, and it's kind of like you know, all this was was a really extended intro, uh, and while it works... I don't necessarily like that we have to wrap everything up in one issue. I, I think that's that's the, the crux of these two arcs in the middle was that they were just two issues. Two issues was just too short to give everything that they wanted to their checklist. You know, you wanted to be able to make it where it's a story. You just grab it and you read it. That's fine. But you've got to dedicate the pages to tell that story. You can't just assume that we're going to be grabbing this stuff from other comics, which – 
you said you wanted to do in your checklist. I mean, if that's the case, then you need to do what you're saying on the page as well. This works, yes, but as we get into the next issue, the next issue is going to feel so rushed. And I think that was the problem with the Dark Times one. Once you got to the point where, okay, we've established who this is, we've established it's bad, now we need to wrap up and get the heck out of here. And I think that that wrap up and get out of here leaves you feeling rushed, which which takes away from the enjoyment of what's going on in these eras. I mean, I, I think the fact that, you know, Luke and Leia have been pulled off and they've been separated is interesting, especially considering the fact that Luke's kind of like backed into a cave and Leia's kind of like in the middle of them all right now with not even a lightsaber. I mean, at least Luke had more to defend himself. Leia's just like she's really lucky that she wasn't scratched or anything, considering the fact that that's all it would have taken. Uh, you know, I mean, just because she happens to be a force sensitive doesn't necessarily mean she's immune to being bit. And so, I mean, that that regard, it's like, lucky is she that Celeste kept control of the rat ghouls to keep them from biting. And I have to just assume that that's all that happened. All this story needs now at this point is uh, a little idiot kid running around in a sheriff's hat that uh, we can call Coral. <laughs> just saying. Um, so we move into issue number 16. And it actually starts with a brief flashback uh, from Celeste Morin's point of view of just, you know, growing up with the dreams that anyone else would have, growing up in a, with a positive childhood and all, um, as the idea that life was supposed to be adventure and now all it is is pain that she knows. And she's very much sort of wrapped up in her own head and her own anger, sort of blaming the universe for all the, the wrongs that have befallen her. And Karnas Mira is speaking sort of into her mind about how the Jedi abandoned her, Vader abandoned her, uh, now she's going to make them pay. So as Luke enters the cave with his lightsaber activated, she sees him and just jumps at him um, with her lightsaber, jumping in to try to kill Luke immediately. Um, Leia cool for, art, by the way. Yeah, very cool art. Another of those cool jump-in attack type scenes like we saw back in uh, Dark Times. Uh, well, in the flashback, real quick, the flashback kind of gives you that sense of, like I was saying with her hair, you know, it, it's drawn in a way that it could be just highlights of light or it could be gray in her hair. But the flashback, you see her hair is more like a reddish brown. Mm -hmm. And then in the bottom one, it's got that that black silver. I, I really kind of think like maybe she's going gray. The character's drawn enough where she could be just dirty or it could be age lines. They don't really give you much detail in that regard. And that was something that as the, as it progresses and gets closer on, it was like, what's going on there? Is the mere talisman preventing her from aging? Or did they just drop the ball on that? Or is this the aging that you're getting? It's just very subtle. I mean, it's hard to tell because so many artist changes have happened since you know the the early part of the story, so it's kind of a, you know, it's it's. I guess the assumption is that it doesn't matter because she's still the same character, even though it really should make a difference when it comes to the artwork and such. Uh, Leia, for her part, uh, uh, has been basically left alone. She's managed to get away from the Rat Ghouls enough that she gets near that cave that Celeste is in with him, uh, and works her way towards it. And you get this sense: it says uh, maybe it's instinct, maybe she's wrong. But she somehow feels that her friend is there and that he is in danger. Of course, at this point, Leia wouldn't know she's Force-sensitive because she doesn't know about her connection to Luke. But it's playing up this idea a couple times in this story that Leia is, of course, Force-sensitive, will eventually be a Jedi. Uh, we briefly jump back to Abel, who is laying you know, bloodied and beaten you know, from his, his encounter with the Rat Ghouls, starting to change, um, but still human enough that he's able to grab his blaster and start moving towards where he believes the princess is indeed in danger. Um, which brings us to Vader. And this is one of those moments where you're like, really? You know, when it comes to, to Vader's motivations here and such. Um, he says that if Celeste Morn will not serve him, the rebels will carry her rat ghoul plague back, back to her fleet, uh, and it will destroy them back to her fleet. Assuming he's referring to Leia there, because it's not Celeste's fleet that they'd be bringing anything back to. Um, but when he finds out from a report that the Millennium Falcon is there, and that's, of course, the one that led in the attack on the Death Star, which suggests that his son may be aboard, uh, he has a moment to think about this, right? What he learned on Centaurus and then later from Sunburn. Could his son be on that moon, on that ship? The plague would claim his son. Uh, but he goes ahead with the plan. Uh, you know, says, there is no doubt. There is only Vader. So even at the possibility of losing Luke... Who could be his son, and there might also possibly be his apprentice soon. Um, he's willing to allow the mission to go forward um, if it means wiping out the rebel fleet. That seemed 
a pretty dark choice for him, and I'm not sure if it was in character for him or not. I could see him going either way on that particular decision, but in this case, he's willing to possibly sacrifice Luke for it. Did that seem in character or out of character for you? Because for me, it's sort of a fence line thing. It's it's a fence line, but I think in this case, it's the the aspect of him that's trying to reject that sliver of light that's Anakin. You know, I'm only Vader. There's no hope. There's only, there's no doubt. You know, he's purging all of it. There's only Vader. There's only my darkness. My darkness requires that I don't care. I'll sacrifice the boy. Um, so I, I think it fits. So as the Millennium Falcon is trying to escape, the Imperials start sending TIE fighters after them. Again, the idea being to try to sort of push them back to the fleet so they can bring the Ghoul Plague if it's already gotten aboard the ship at this point. Meanwhile, Luke is dueling with Celeste and... You know, he is way, way overmatched. Thankfully, they don't somehow make him into magically her equal in dueling, which would have been easy to assume that they were going to do. Uh, instead, Luke gets easily bested, and she's asking, you know, you know, are you one of the helpers that Carrick said he would send? You know, did the Empire not wipe out the Jedi completely? You know, did Vader send you to finish me, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Um, and and he, while he's cornered. Uh, he's he essentially sort of compares himself there you know could he have worked for vader you know which of course is what vader wants you know luke hears the name of his father's killer and it pains him because again at this point he doesn't think that vader is his father yet uh, he could never serve never be like that monster uh, but as he looks into her eyes and sees the shadows lying there he is struck by the words of obi-wan from what feels like an age ago vader was seduced by the dark side of the force and he sees it feels it the dark side this is the dark side. Um, I'm assuming that, you know, this is one of the first times that, that Luke is able to feel the dark side of the Force and at least recognize what it is, though he's been around Vader before and, you know, in the Marvel comics and such and should have already sensed what it is and such. Um, yeah, but, but Vader's wonder... dark side personified, whereas this is more subtle. Like, it wasn't until he looked into her eyes that he sees the underlying darkness and then recognizes it. I'm just wondering, you know, how much of that is what he's sensing as Carnus Mirror versus what is Celeste, and is it possible that it's easier to sense the dark side in someone if they haven't bathed in millennia? <laughs> because, or, or decades. I don't know if the stasis chamber keeps you from getting all icky from not bathing, but even if it did, it's been about two decades since uh, Celeste, if anything, washed her braided up hair. It's probably a pretty yeah. rank situation there on a... On, <laughs> My one dread. <laughs> but Leia sneaks up behind her with a rock, basically, to bash her head in and save Luke. Um, and she's able, of course, to sense that coming. You know, she pulls uh, uh, her lightsaber on Leia, believes that they are assassins. And when the time comes for her to basically say, you know, look, I'm going to respond in kind. I'm going to kill Luke. I'm going to kill Leia. They are assassins sent to kill me, probably by Vader. Uh, here comes in Abel blasting away uh, with his uh, blaster rifle. And this is the moment where it goes from they're just rat ghouls out there who are attacking, possibly under her command, and biting people to turn them into rat ghouls, to her using the talisman to actually turn someone into a rat ghoul, which presumably is an effect that will spread, uh, or could spread, because she uses the force to grab Abel, lifts him up into the air, and then... Uh, Changes him, says, as she was afflicted with a terrible curse, a monster shares her thoughts, ripped from her time, from her life, and entombed in stasis for thousands of years. Then when she woke, she discovered no healers, no hope. Her reward for four millennia of sleep? Prison. Prison on a derelict moon. Prison for decades. And still they come to hurt her. And she screams, leave me alone! And then turns him into a rat ghoul. Though... Now, part of it is, wait a second, wait, 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 somebody's revising history. Somebody's lying to herself because wasn't it... Celeste herself, who chose to imprison herself there so that she could stop Karnas Mir from being able to escape into the galaxy at large, that plays a role in the entire way the rest of this issue plays out and how it is inconsistent with her motivations back in dark times. Uh, it's as well, if but she's... that also puts in the fact, though, that she's been with him for so long that you can't tell where one's thoughts and the other's beginning. Like, like she's almost brainwashed at this point. At least that's how I assumed it, was that this is how she's viewing it now. Like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, she came out and she was a prisoner. Granted, yes, she chose that prison, but at the end of the day, she became a prisoner. It wasn't the hope that Zane had necessarily promised her. It just, it seems as though, I mean, I, I, I get that, and I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, to accept it based on the fact that it has been about 20 years. She has been alone. She's probably pretty mentally screwed up. As Vader had said, you know, what madness might have befallen her up to this point. 
but if there is any part of her that is still her, you know, it seems like she is not really, really willing to acknowledge her own role in the imprisonment. You know, what is her reward? Prison. No, that wasn't your reward. That was something you chose. That's kind of a different thing. Um, but in any event, uh, she transforms him into sort of like the Mando rack, right? Where he's a Mando, but or a Mando, a rat ghoul, but still able to control the blaster rifle because he's still holding it there. Um, and whispering in her ear, so to speak, um, Karnas is the one to realize, you know, Luke and Leia aren't affected. When she used that ability to transform him, it didn't transform Luke and Leia. They must be Force-sensitive, which brings us into another of those really cool, you know, visions of a possible future thing that each of these stories has done so far. Um, she looks at both of them, both Luke and Leia, sensing the Force within them, um, and sees essentially a vision, uh, kind of a weird vision, um, that has, looks like Karnas mirrors slashing through and conquering the galaxy, but it's actually Luke who's doing it. Luke with the mirror talisman on him, and he's standing above the bodies of, among others, a Celeste and Vader and Leia, and beside him, kind of as a quasi-mirror image, I guess meant because it's supposed to be in his mind, not actually there physically, is Karnas Muir holding a lightsaber with the mirror talisman on him. Uh, a power which could achieve his destiny to rule, and all will tremble at the mention of his name, Karnas Muir. But it's the moment when Karnas Muir realizes that Luke would be a better vessel than Celeste. I guess because Luke doesn't have the ability to fight him off as much as Celeste has gotten. Because certainly Celeste is a more powerful Jedi than Luke is, at least in training at this point. Um, but at that moment of realizing that, the talisman, which again is kind of acting almost like a little crab like or an insect, is able to sort of direct itself based on Muir's spirit, detaches itself from her neck and leaps to attack itself to Luke. But Leia jumps in between to save Luke, pushes him away, and because she's Force-sensitive, of course, um, she makes a good target too, and attaches to her. Uh, very well, this one may not yet be as advanced as the other, but she will do. And it feels like the whole dynamic just changed. Holy crap! Leia is now the mirror talisman host. We'll find it doesn't last long. But that was kind of a shocking moment for me, even if we know that things are going to change. Again, it would have been nice to have more issues to this where maybe we would have seen what Leia would do with the talisman's power. But instead, yeah. they're going to resolve it within a matter of a few pages here because they're already on the last issue of the two they've got for Rebellion. Well, I think the reason why the talisman wanted Luke and even Zane, I, I, I get back to, I really think that that's the same bloodline. You know, it, it recognizes the power in the bloodline and the potential that they have. Uh, I mean, you know, Vader especially had a lot of potential, but Luke even more so. I mean, Luke's always been a, a, a up and above in that kind of regard. Uh, I like the fact that Leia sacrifices herself, though, to try to save Luke and the fact that it puts her there. Because I was kind of wanting to see a vision of Leia with the talisman as well. I mean, they could have even slipped that in once she had it on. And this, to me, is another of these important moments for Celeste. Um, it seemed as though in Dark Times, when she chose to essentially have the Rat Ghouls try to kill Vader, leaving her stranded on the moon, she was making a choice to do that. It was a choice made out of desperation. Um, she had the talisman on her. She didn't want Vader to get it. But now she's been freed. The fact that it leapt to Leia means that it is no longer attached to her. But as she thinks back to her situation, essentially, um, she feels alone. The fact that she doesn't have the talisman on her and it's been so many years and everything that she loved is gone makes her feel very alone. And she thinks of herself as a victim, a tragic victim of all the stuff that she has endured. But in that moment, she makes a conscious choice very much uh, something that she hasn't really been able to do up to this point, uh, at least not as a free person, someone with no talisman on her that she has to worry about. She makes the choice that now that she is free, she will no longer be a victim. She will take, com take charge, take command. And she somewhat, somewhat manages to make the same decision she made back in Dark Times, or at least it looks like it at first. She takes her lightsaber, slices very accurately, and hits the talisman, causing it to let go of Leia. It falls to the ground where she picks it up, puts it onto herself, and somehow it's not going to be able to just let go and run off again like it just did a moment ago. Um, she puts it on herself uh, and accepts it. Um, accepts essentially that she is going to keep Karnas Muir trapped within her, and she's going to be the one essentially taking charge, 
so that it can't be let loose in the galaxy at large otherwise and can't wind up uh, letting Mirror control someone like Luke or Leia. Uh, as she walks away, Luke tries to ask her, you know, you're a Jedi, aren't you? I need to know the Force. I don't know enough about the Force. I don't know my history, my destiny. He wants to know from her the truth about the Force. He needs a new teacher, something Luke has been looking for and won't really find until Yoda. And she tells him, just kind of sensing a bit about him, says, there is darkness in you, little Jedi. It is in your blood, in your past, and your future. And then she just force pushes him and smacks him backwards so she can walk away. Um, she then walks out into just this army of rat ghouls that she controls. And uh, uh, before she can really do anything, now that it looks like she's not going to probably have them kill Luke and Leia, uh, in comes the Millennium Falcon, blasting into the area uh, and managing to pick up Luke and Leia so that they can escape. Uh, unfortunately, um, this has left behind another ship there because remember the rebels came down in two of them. Um, and she decides to go take that ship and leave. She says, uh, don't get too excited, Karnas, she says to the spirit. I don't think I'm ready to, to let you loose just yet. You're going to listen to my whispers for a while. And there's a whole new galaxy to explore. She takes the ship, launches, uh, and as it's it's going above, um, Vader wants his men to open fire on it to destroy it. But as she passes by the ship, passes by the Star Destroyer, apparently she senses Vader through his connection, his, his uh, uh, holographic connection to the vessel. Or she just recognizes the troops perhaps on board and uses the power of the Mirror Talisman to turn everyone aboard the Star Destroyer into Rat Ghouls, causing the Star Destroyer to fall, Executor into the Death Star style, into the moon and explode. Uh, and of course we then get our sort of denouement with them back at the Rebel fleet where Luke is kind of questioning what's going on, um, uh, sad about the loss of Abel and reflecting back on uh, what Celeste had said when we see a, a panel that's very similar to the panel when she did say, you know, you know, it's in your past, it's in your blood, it's in your future, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we end with Luke not really changed much, Abel dead, but it seems as though sort of, uh, I don't know, Vader's thing's kind of weird. Like, do, does he know when he orders them to shoot down that ship, does he know that the rebels aren't aboard that ship heading back to the fleet? Because if he doesn't know that, shouldn't he have let the ship go to the Rebel fleet, which is part of his plan in the first place? Is he sensing something? And what about Celeste? The whole point of her staying on the moon and imprisoning herself there was so that the talisman, even on her, doesn't get out into the rest of the galaxy. And yet here she is, rather than choosing to stay or having to be Karnas Mirror that prompts her to take the ship and leave, she just flat out takes the ship and leaves my choice. Maybe psychologically it makes sense that she wants to get out of there and get away from the same old thing and thinks she's got him under control. But it seems as though she has just undone the decision that she made back in Dark Times and is making a choice that doesn't seem like it's in the best interest of the galaxy anymore. She needs to be away from there to set up her showing up in the pages of Legacy. But her choice here seems out of character. It seems like it doesn't fit what Celeste has been trying to do throughout. Um, and if she really is back in her right mind and not mad as she appeared as this part of re the Rebellion part of the arc began, why is she making this decision? That left me scratching my head a little bit. And again, it makes it feel like connective tissue just to get the characters from point A to point B rather than really fitting in with everything we've come to expect of the characters. Yeah, the whole ending just they, – they did so much forcing things forward for, at this point that it really had me stopping and scratching my head. I mean I don't understand why she decided to crash the Star Destroyer. I mean it – it seems like she's in a Star Destroyer when she shows up later. Leaving her trapped on the planet was an ideal way of leaving the character there. I mean, that was, you know, when we go from KOTOR into Dark Times, she was in that casket. That made sense. Then she was trapped on the planet till here. Now she's loose and free in the galaxy till she shows up in Legacy. That just, that does not sit well with me it does not make as much sense uh and, and yeah like like the whole vader aspect i mean why did he decide to let it go one minute and then change his mind the next i mean there's a lot there that is just left so wide open that we're just supposed to assume that okay this is the way it's supposed to roll why uh i mean who decided this part of the story this seems so forced it doesn't even leave a good taste in my mouth 
Uh, when you get to the part, though, about Luke and what she had said about his future and stuff, I like the aspect for him, how it gives him the vector of the fact that now he can look at his blood and know that there's some darkness there. He doesn't know necessarily that his dad's Vader yet, but he knows that not everything is so good with his bloodline, that there is some darkness to it and the fact that it also lies in his future. So he's been kind of forewarned. I like that aspect of it. But the way it leaves Morn's character, I hated it. I could not stand the way they left it. I hated the fact that they killed off Abel and the fact that she got away and is completely free. The threat is there and it just made no sense. It was so rushed that it felt like that they were just like missing something in the rush to get out of this era. Like we got to get on to the next part. We got to get to legacy. We got to get there. And I just I feel like they really kind of they they kind of forsaken the storytelling at this point because of that because of how quickly they went. Like I said, when we get to the beginning of this issue, that's where she gets to meet Luke and everything. I mean, they they put so much into this one issue that it just didn't work. And what's worse is this is the one issue that ends it all. You wait till this issue to wrap up a series, a story arc for this series. And move the story forward at the same time. There was just way too much vectoring in on this one story, and it failed across the board for me. Uh, you know, I, I just, yeah, it was cool with the whole them standing there with the maybe that Luke says when you know when she goes, maybe you, he saw your future. But I, I don't know. I, I just did not like the way this one ended at all. I mean, and it had a good setup. It was decent enough. But there was just so much that they just assumed that we were going to figure out that they just didn't tell us, and they was just like, well, here you go. Yeah, I said I would put this. Uh, behind dark times in the rankings. Bear in mind, what I mean is in terms of did they meet their goals in the thing. I think that this pair of issues is more entertaining to read than the dark times pair was. Yeah. Um, But just from the standpoint of did they meet their goals. So again, what are the goals? Make the events mean something to the characters in each of the series, and it needs to change the course of every series that it touches. Okay, well, um, uh, does it change the characters? Well, not really, because you can't really do much with Leia and Luke and Han and Chewie because, let's face it, there are so many stories in this era that no character development for them really ever feels like it's permanent. That's why Leia is constantly either okay with or all broken up by the loss of Alderaan, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, extremely wishy-washy on the subject. Um, she's had catharsis. She hasn't had catharsis. Um, so from that point, standpoint, no. Um, does it have a, an enduring effect on Dina and Basso? We don't know because we never see them again. And then during effect on Abel, yeah, it kills him, just like with Chris Tanzier back in Dark Times. Um, but that, we, as far as we know, has no effect on anything, because all we get is the one quick little bit with Luke at the end, you know, saddened by the loss of Abel. Nothing else comes directly out of it. Does it change the course of the series? Well, if you consider being the final issue changing its course, sure. But that's where I find the, the BS I've got to call on... Well, there's this planned hiatus from this era of Star Wars that we were going to take in 2009 because of all these other series that were starting. Um, okay, if your plan was to end Rebellion right then or even take a hiatus from Rebellion, then your whole thing about uh, 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 that and it's going to change the course of all the series it touches, those are inconsistent. It's either going to change the course of the series, which means the series is going to continue just with a different direction or with some changes to its uh, to the status quo, or you're going to end it. But if you end it, that's not a change of course. Not real. That's, that's an end of a course. But we don't get to see any changes coming out of this. So I would say first checkbox, boom, failed on both counts. Um, second checkbox, being reader-friendly. Um, I don't know. It, for those who have read this series, I think it is somewhat reader-friendly. I think it probably could stand a little bit more background on what the heck is going on with Celeste. Um, mm-hmm. But it works out all right if you're, you know, reading the the opening little scrawl, uh, the opening crawl type things they have on the the interior pages. It doesn't go out of its way to explain, but at the same time, you know, it's it's decent enough. It it makes it clear enough what has happened with Vader previously that he had found her and had left her behind. Um, so in that sense, it kind of is reader friendly to those who've been reading uh, Rebellion but not reading uh, the rest of the stuff. Well, it was so nice to go back and fill us in on what happened in the films. Like, we missed it. <laughs> um, but I would say that if it comes down to um, is it easily accessible to uh, new readers, I don't know. Uh, they don't take much time to talk about Dina or Basso or Abel. Basically, any of these supporting characters just kind of show up. And aside from Abel, only get the tiniest, tiniest amount of screen time. 
uh, and beyond Abel, none of them get anything to really give them much in the way of characterization. So it well, sort of feels the like they're just in there. What's the point of a new reader picking up the last two issues of the series anyway? I mean, if you're not going to continue the story, then what's the point of a new reader grabbing it? Uh, that, yeah, fail, yeah. <laughs> so for that one, um, is it ex- easily accessible to new and long-time readers? I would say long-time, probably new, no. Um, so that's going to be another uh, checkbox missed or at least partially missed. And then that third one, as I said there, about whether you for- feel like you're forced to read the other issues of the crossover. Does this feel like a self-contained story? Not really. Again, you kind of need to know what happened in dark times, but at least they give you some detail of that. But we will never be able to truly fully judge how much this feels like a standalone story, how much you would not have needed to read the issues before and after it because there are no issues after it. So again, I would say that is probably another failed box, at least from our perspective here. So we've got one of the three different parts of Vector that we've seen so far, the KOTOR part that seems to have met its expectations, but both Dark Times and Rebellion, possibly telling because they only had two issues each, and perhaps because they only had two issues each, wind up failing in that regard. Uh, it just it's, it's not meeting the expectations of what Vector was supposed to be. Not reader expectations, though it's not meeting that either, but not even the expectations of those who planned the series itself. Yeah, and even if you add the four together, it still just doesn't work. I, you know, there was too much that they were trying to tell in too short of a period of time. They had to have expanded it, and they didn't. And because of that, the story is where it got hurt, right there in the middle. It just slowed down, it bogged down, and by the time we pick back up again for Legacy, you kind of have to, you know, forget about a lot of this stuff happening. I mean, the fact that she rode off into the sunset, you know, I mean... And and what's going on with her age, all that kind of stuff is just left completely wide open. And I don't know. I'm not a big fan of that. I mean, most of you Beyonders know that. I like to have things spelled out for me. I don't like to have to scratch my head and, and contemplate things too often. I've got enough of that. <laughs> that seems to be a Lucas model. Let's contemplate you. And then when you think you got it figured out, we'll throw you a, a, a hydra spanner into the works and really, really get you confused. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to go on before we hit the covers, Nathan? No, I think I mean I think we're pretty good. I'm very eager to get on to Legacy because I feel like this episode and the last one we've been beating up on Vector, and it's not that we're beating up on Vector as a concept, but the execution of the Dark Times of Rebellion parts just don't hold up, whereas yeah. the ones on either end are going to. So uh, let's wrap this up so we can move on to our next episode, actually being positive about yeah. more of, of this. Get back to the light side. Well, when we're looking at the covers here, it, it, it's it's almost like a 50-50 when you got the two. It's like you got one you like and one you don't like. Uh, for me, it's 15. I like 15 a lot. You got uh, you got Karnas Mirror. You got a side profile of him, his old Sithy self kind of thing. Uh, well, I guess he's not quite an old Sithy self because he's just got the pointed ears. He's not really a red Sith. But I like the look of him there, and and it's contrasted with uh, with Celeste Morn's lightsaber cutting down across the way, and she's holding the lightsaber, and she's looking off the side. Her eyes have like a bloodshot red look to them, so you, you don't know if she's like Sith out or if it's just the the lighting there uh, I, I don't know I like it I like the look of her armor I like the look of, of her uh, and you know mirror just looks sick and evil I, I like the way that looks and it says Luke meets an ancient Jedi a new hope or an old threat and you know it's like you know you always been wondering I mean that, that was the other thing it was like Luke's running into an old Jedi and he never really had a chance to even talk to her about what being an old Jedi was I mean there were so many missed opportunities there uh, but the next one, you got them kind of, it's her and him just at a cross with their lightsaber blades. I like the realness of the characters, but I'm not quite really a fan of the way they're posed. Uh, it almost seems like the lightsaber should be, uh, I don't know, misangled or something. Like, it looks like it should be cutting Luke more or something. It's a clash with the dark side. And obviously they're in the cave during that confrontation. But it, the characters look cool. But again, I just don't like the, the way that they're, they're sitting on the page. It doesn't quite strike me as well as the other one. I actually like both of these covers. I like the whole uh, uh, splitting on number 15 where we've got essentially Cardus Muir so we can sort of see what he looks like outside of uh, the interior artwork so with a little bit more detail. Um, Celeste uh, works fine in that image there. And then, of course, uh, the other cover, number 16, uh, it's her clashing with Luke, but they both look like themselves. Um, I think that, that works pretty well. Uh, no issues with either cover this time except... I would say that now that we have moved between two other parts, there's that thing up in the corner. In the corner of the KOTOR parts, the Muir Talisman was facing upward in the top right corner. In Dark Times, it was facing downward. 
Now in Rebellion, it's facing downward again, and when we get to Legacy, we'll find it is facing upward again. You could say that it's facing downward on the story arcs that are only two issues, and upward on the ones that are only four, and that's the only significance there is. I'd like to think that it's pointing upwards to tell people, hey, these are the good ones, and downward to say, <laughs> skip it, thumbs down, or talisman down, so to speak. Hey, that's a fair assessment, I have to say. <laughs> Truth in cover making. Yes. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging out with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes. And we always encourage you guys to leave us a review over there on iTunes while you're at it. Help us grow as a show. You can find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms. Or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. Our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to fire off a comment about a past episode, email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWars.com. Right, and of course, if you want to check out uh, the Amazon.com shop my wife and I run, is Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. Uh, also, if you're wanting to uh, uh, to help out, donate and such with the whole uh, uh, medical bills issue that we have had going on for quite a while now, it seems like, I can send a PayPal donation to Nathan at StarWarsFanWords.com. Uh, the community has been just awesome in its support, both financially and morally, as we're going through these, these really... Uh, trying uh, times right now, waiting for test results and just letting the bills just pile up and pile up. And that's with insurance at this point. Um, uh, though on a more positive note, I would say uh, I really, really look forward to seeing your thoughts, folks, on Vector, all the different pieces of Vector. So make sure that as we cover this uh, over these four episodes that you get a chance to send in your feedback because eventually we'll have a feedback episode and I imagine Vector will take up a nice big chunk of it. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. 30 days. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanding Universe or any other genre out there, and you can do it without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening, and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that Celeste Moore's decision to leave will perhaps make more sense once we read Legacy. Or the odds that Marvel will do something like this down the road. Oh, Lord, with Marvel, you know there'll be X-Men involved. <laughs> Touché. Use the force, Logan. You're not the only one with force gifts. I can just see it now, the next X-Men schism. We have to keep Logan from the dark side! He's at risk! <laughs> <laughs>